a Podcast One production. It's inside the halls of power in Parliament House in Canberra. It's got the big red chairs. Are they mauve? Whatever the case, we're talking about the Senate. The House of Representatives seems to get all the publicity. It's where the Prime Minister and opposition leaders sit, slanging off at each other. But what actually goes on in the Senate? Now, as I understand it, it's the last step before ideas politicians come up with become law. So that would make it rather important, yeah? Well, as my next guest on Peacock Politics will explain, there's so much more we should know about the Senate. She sat in those red, mauve, cushy seats as a senator for 13 years, elected in the first place as a member of the Australian Democrats as the youngest woman elected to Parliament, just 26 years of age. Now, Natasha Stott-Despoia, I want to know first up, did you feel that young when you actually finished with politics about 10 years ago? Well, Adam, after about 13 years in the upper house as a minor party senator, I sort of view it in dog years. So, um, (laughs) yes, I did feel considerably older by the time I left uh, that uh, hallowed institution. Uh, But what an amazing experience it was. And being relatively young when I was first appointed and then elected made it an extraordinary experience in many respects. How daunting was it for you at 26 years of age walking into that joint? Well, it was incredibly daunting, not just because of, you know, the rarefied nature of the place and the distinction of being one of 76 representatives as a senator, but there were very few women. Around 14% of the parliament was female. And obviously, I was the youngest, the youngest ever to enter uh, the parliament uh, and youngest at that stage ever elected. So, I felt just that little bit different and there was a novelty as we saw at the time and I appreciate better in retrospect, but a novelty attached to being relatively young and female. So everything from, you know, what I wore uh, to how I spoke, uh, you know, to the policies I was interested in received quite a degree of scrutiny that probably was unusual. And that was on the periphery. You were a senator for 13 years 1995 to 2008. So you've got a really good understanding and you can tell me, why is the Senate so important in Australian politics? Well, you mentioned the fact that the Senate has red cushions or red leather benches as they traditionally were. And I like to think that the real action was in those red leather benches. Uh, It may be that government is formed in the green benches, otherwise known as the House of Representatives. But the Senate in Australia has a really interesting and arguably uh, quite a rare role. Most upper houses around the world don't have the same power as the Australian Senate, but essentially it's to keep a check on executive power, so keep an eye on government, keep an eye on the cabinet, but also it has an amazing power, quite a large degree of freedom to initiate policy, to put forward laws, and more importantly, as some would say, it can actually stop, so it can reject legislation that it doesn't approve of. And that's a rare power when you compare it to other upper houses around democracies around the world. So there's the opportunity to bring up ideas, not just sit there and and judge what's coming out of the House of Representatives and say yay or nay. Absolutely. So a lot of upper houses in different parts of the world, you know, have that opportunity to cast their eye over legislation or offer advice. And you look at maybe the Washington system, so the US system, on which ours is sort of modelled. So the idea of giving all states equal representation, that's something we've taken from them. But we're kind of a Washminster system because we've also borrowed from that Westminster system in the United Kingdom, 
where it's really important that you overview legislation, you assess it on its merits and you decide whether or not it should go forward. But this extraordinary power to be able to reject, amend and indeed initiate legislation is very rare for what we call a bicameral system, so a system where you have two chambers in your parliament. So that last point you just brought up, I read in your biography, which is long and extensive and very impressive, you introduced 24 private members' bills. I read that and went, that sounds impressive, but I have no idea what it is. Can you please um, indulge me in what it actually means and what's the difference between a public and a private members' bill if there is a difference, if there is such a thing as a public one? Well, most legislation, so policy, is initiated by the government of the day and usually in the chamber where government is formed, so the lower house, the House of Representatives. So it's pretty, I mean, as you'd expect, it's really the role of government to provide that policy initiation and keep the country running with good ideas, you hope, and changes to law. But there is this other mechanism, and I think it's increasingly used now as you see more parties reflected and represented, not just in the lower house, but in the upper house, there is a mechanism by which a private member or a senator can initiate their own policy. So, for example, in 2002, I tabled Australia's first paid parental leave legislation. Now, at the time, it was rejected by both Labor and Liberal. But fast forward, you know, 10, 15, 17 years, the same legislation that I initiated is essentially now in place and has been uh, for almost a decade because these ideas don't always happen immediately, but they do get picked up, they get worked on, they get currency, they might even get electoral support, and then governments can actually take those ideas and sometimes implement them as their own, sometimes private members' bills actually pass in their own right. And you saw that recently in Australia with the passage of the same-sex marriage legislation, which was, you know, initiated by one particular senator, even though it was supported by many. And that's a rare case and an important case where people get legislation passed, even though it's not backed by a government. So it's the house of ideas as well as the house of adjudication, if you like, and passing bills that come from the House of Representatives all the way through. But Politics, of course, is involved in all of it. 2002, you mentioned the paid parental leave scheme that you wanted up and running, but you were in the middle of it. So you were the Australian Democrats. That was the party you were representing. You've got Labor on your left. You've got Liberal on your right. And both of them said no. Did they basically say no because it wasn't their idea? Is this where the politics of the Senate comes in, that you've got to get people on side and, and massage egos? Or is it a simple case of a good idea is a good idea? If only a good idea was a good idea in politics. Of course, it's not that simple, unfortunately. But you're right about the composition of the chamber. You know, government sits on one side and opposite the government uh, is the non-government parties or in particular the opposition, in this case, you know, the Labor Party. And literally in the middle of that sort of horseshoe style design, you have minor parties. And yes, that's where the Democrats used to sit, really in the centre. And that symbolises what you need to do. No one party traditionally dominates the upper house in Australian politics. So yes, you've got to get the support of at least one other party to amend, support, pass legislation. And this is both what people would describe as the beauty of and, of course, the difficulty of the upper house or the Senate because 
Governments get frustrated when their laws don't get passed. Um, Oppositions also get frustrated if they can't win over the minor parties to get them to support them in rejecting something. So it's a real test of wills. It's a test of ideas, as you said earlier. So I like that aspect of the Senate. But some people say, my goodness, just let government run. But you know what? The Senate is why governments can run, because it makes sure that any laws, any policy that comes forward are actually good You go through the nitty-gritty, and I mean good as in robust, that they stand up legislative tests. You know, you've got to make sure that legislation is correct and you've got to make sure you get rid of mistakes, and that doesn't always happen. How do you do that? By committee or by yourself, or how does that come to fruition? The best aspect of the Senate is its committee system. So you not only have a broad range of ideas and people and parties represented to give ideas on policies and to assess and scrutinise legislation, but you actually have a formal committee process. So there's a range of committees. Some deal with issues like the environment, some deal with economics, some deal with arts, some deal with the territories. There are a range of portfolio areas that are scrutinised in much more detail. And these committees, again, the best thing about them is they're multi-party committees. And sometimes you'll see, in fact, sometimes the best times, you see politicians working across party lines to come up with something that is real, that is robust, that is good laws or indeed good ideas. And that happens occasionally. And I think if the public saw that more often, you know what? They'd probably have more faith in our political system. Yeah. I'm sitting outside the bubble and and thinking, I'm sure it does happen, but I haven't seen it in action and you wouldn't know it. That's the more important thing. You wouldn't know it because there's so much bile flying (laughs) from left to right to across the chamber and that gets lost. So you actually do get on with these people that are fundamentally on other ideas that you don't agree with you, for the good of the country. The good of the country is put first on occasion. Well, I'd suggest that in recent years we've seen a diminution, so a real sort of negative, you know, a real decline in some of the political discourse. And I think we've seen a real decline in how people approach each other talk to each other. I listen to the Senate sometimes and I'm actually shocked at how people refer to each other. So in the past, there was, I think, a bit more civility in the way that people conducted their discussions and debates. And a really important part of that, not only in the Senate, but in the House of Representatives, is the President or in the House of Representatives, the Speaker. And people talk through the speaker or through the chair. So you're not actually just yelling at each other saying, you know, you're this, you're that, the honourable member has a pimple on their tongue or whatever they want to say. (laughs) It's probably a little, you know, more robust than that. I bet. But these days you do hear people, you know, screaming at each other and shouting and banging tables. And I think that's a really bad side of politics. And when we see that as citizens, we lose faith in our elected representatives. But when the Senate operates well, And it's usually behind the scenes. But sometimes, you know, when you have debates conducted within the chamber, when it works well, it's really exciting because you see people exchanging ideas and advice. But I would suggest we have seen a real rigidity in our party political system these days. People vote, you know, in their parties. They don't tend to cross the floor. That is, you know, when you vote against your party. And rarely do people exercise a conscience vote. And I think if we did some of those things, again, we'd have a better, more robust and perhaps a system that we held in much more respect. When you mean conscience vote, you mean... So when people have a free vote, it's called a conscience vote. So you can vote according to your personal views, not your party's mandated views on a particular topic. And sometimes governments 
or parties will designate a vote a conscience vote. And there have been a couple of examples during my time in Parliament on that. One was when we had to debate the issue of euthanasia. The second one was when we were debating the stem cell legislation. And people had strong views. So usually these are so-called social or ethical issues people want to vote on. And you can't always reach a party line that satisfies everyone. But the best debates in my time in Parliament were conscience votes, because guess what? Every politician had to read the legislation. Everyone had to develop a view. Everyone had to consult their constituents. And as a consequence, the debates were much more informed. They were personal. They were passionate. And they were really, really interesting, as opposed to one person getting up saying the party line, another party person standing up and giving their line, and then everyone having an argument. So a conscience vote is essentially like playing pool and picking out the ball that you're going to sink and you have to call it before. Everyone knows before and then they get on with working out what they want to do with that particular vote. Interesting analogy, yes and no, because the other aspect of conscience votes can be quite suspenseful. You don't necessarily know what someone's view is. When I sat in the stem cell legislation debates and I heard one senator who had had very strong religious views and had expressed them multiple times in Parliament. And I thought there's no way that he's going to vote for progressing this particular legislation. And you know what? He stood up, gave an amazing speech, a very personable, personal one, and voted for the bill. And I thought, my goodness, no one could have guessed the numbers on this because who knew that this person felt so strongly about medical research and science that they were prepared to balance some of their personal ethical religious views in order to achieve the outcome. So I like that idea that we don't know what everyone's going to do in advance. Of course, you can't have that every day because us voters need to know who we're voting for and what they stand for. But when it comes to really personal, you know, really, really gritty issues, people are entitled to have, you know, a range of views. I like the idea of committees because I think we should implement that more in our household, actually, instead of one of the kids coming to one of us parents and just one parent deciding, it should be a collaborative approach and perhaps you will get the better decisions and the kids will get a yay or nay from two people instead of just the one. We can all get on with life a lot easier. You've summed it up perfectly. That's exactly what the committee system has traditionally been about with one other ingredient, and that is members of the public can have their say. So the idea of committees is not only for senators to increase the depth of their knowledge about a policy issue or indeed a piece of legislation, it's to invite submissions from people in the community. So you may have a view on a particular issue. It might be to do with disability law reform or it might be to do with science and stem cells or it might be about taxation on issues from tampons to franking credits, you know. But you want to hear from your electorate, hear what people have to say and also the experts. So whether they're academics or whether they're commentators, it makes a difference. It informs your knowledge. And so senators sometimes will say, you know what, I didn't know that. I'm going to change my view on that particular amendment or that particular bill. So it is collaborative and it relies on a majority opinion as well. And that's nice. When you reach consensus, that's even better. Is it best for senators to leave their egos at the doors of parliament and judge each bill on its merits? Well, of course, you can't leave your personal values and your beliefs behind entirely. But there is something to be said for having an open mind on a piece of legislation or policy. 
I think that we all must bring our values to the work that we do. And I think politicians need to declare what those values are, especially when it's an election and we're voting for them. But when you talk about leaving egos at the door, I mean, most egos can't fit through the doors in Parliament House now. They're so big. And there's a reason for that as well. Okay, you've got to have a healthy ego, arguably, uh, to run for office. And I'm not exempt from that. I'm sure of it. But I do think this day and age, it's very different. And people are dealing with social media, 24-7 news cycles. There's a real expectation of our political representatives that they're going to be personalities and faces and doing media for the sake of it and not always as a means to an end. So egos can be developed a lot further these days because there's almost a celebrity factor attached to politics and politicians. And the days of sitting in a room collaborating or doing committee work, or indeed, as I used to do, just sit in that chamber, listening to the debate or, you know, making notes or indeed reading the legislation. Some of those days have gone. Is that why we hear some really, really weird stuff uttered in that chamber now? An example, Fraser Anning, using the word final before the word solution, which I found when I heard it extraordinary, given my background in two-unit history at high school, I even knew that that was perhaps not the most intelligent thing to say on public record. Is that why we're hearing things like that? Is that people are putting their egos before the good of or the reason why they're actually there? I think in order to get attention now in this 24-7 media cycle world, people do more and more outrageous things. Sometimes they do extreme things. That was an extreme thing to do in the same way that Senator Pauline Hanson walking into question time wearing a burqa, not as a sign of respect or understanding, but in order to denigrate someone's faith. That to me was quite shocking. In my time in Parliament, uh, they were very strict about dress code. So I can't imagine anyone donning what they considered someone else's religious wear for a day. Um, in fact, once I did wear a T-shirt under my jacket that had a political slogan on it. And Mr President said to me, Natasha, Senator Stock Despoyer, I'm warning you, take that T-shirt off now. So I said, are you sure, Mr. President? And then he realised, maybe not right now. Um, that would be wrong, but I digress. But look, What did the T-shirt say? Oh, I think it was a, um, a no-war T-shirt on that occasion. Okay. I used to have quite a healthy supply of T-shirts, but, uh, but I am actually... I joke about it, but I'm a protocol girl and I always observed the protocols of the chamber, whether that was in the way that I spoke to people. I observed the standing orders and that included the dress code as well. And there are some conventions that may seem a bit silly these days. Men were supposed to wear ties and everyone is supposed to wear jackets. And in fact, it was a scandal once when one of my colleagues, an Australian Democrat senator, the late Robert Bell, took his tie off. And people went crazy saying, how dare you? You're showing no respect. So I think the respect probably comes in the way you view the Senate and the way you handle your job as opposed to what you're wearing. But in order to get on well, you've got to have some rules in place. And that's the trick to different people from different parties getting on well. And when you talk about extreme examples such as, you know, Senator Anning's comments in the chamber, that does disrupt that basic level of respect, um, not only within the Senate, but I think the community as a whole. And once again, it probably explains why we hold politicians in the lowest esteem that we have in not only living memory, but as long as we've been researching trust in politicians. You sit there sometimes in the chamber or in committees and listen to someone who either has clearly not researched what they're saying 
or you clearly do not agree with their views and just like shake your head, roll your eyes, or do you just have to bite your tongue because you've got to respect their point of view and where they've come from and who voted for them? Okay, when I say that I observe, you know, the standing orders, sometimes you can't help but interject. Um, But when you have a lively and respectful debate, sometimes a little interjection from the sides, both positive and negative, doesn't hurt. But that's the ultimate frustration. Um, And as a minor party where, you know, you're responsible for a number of portfolios, you actually have to do what some backbenchers don't need to do, and that is read the bill, understand the legislation, come up with the amendments, consult the community. And it used to drive me nuts, for example, if I was sitting in the chamber as a little girly swat, I'd read my bill, I was ready for the debate, and a senator, particularly a well-known, very high-profile campaigner who didn't always do the nitty-gritty legislating but certainly did a lot of the talking, would come in and say, what's this bill about, Natasha? And I'd say, you know, well, this is what it's about and this is the section we're dealing with. And then he'd stand up, give a speech and get the headlines and the news that night. And I'd be sitting there with my Democrat colleagues thinking, you know, hang on, what just happened there? He just stole so, it already. <laughs> exactly. And it's really interesting because that's a huge tension between being great campaigners and being great legislators. And that's something we're losing in politics at the moment. Everyone wants to be upfront, high profile, get lots of votes, campaign well, get their messages across. And I understand why, because obviously you've got to get a you know, into Parliament to make change. You've got to be voted for. But we need good legislators, people who take the serious role of legislating, you know, in a way that really ensures that legislation is robust, it's rigorous, and you don't have mistakes. And that's the role of the Senate. And sometimes we lose that in this sort of very modern campaign environment. And that upsets me because I think I loved being a legislator. I'm not sure about being a politician. (laughs) Well, you went to the wrong place (laughs) for the last bit. (laughs) Natasha, why is it that only half the Senate is voted on each election? So half done here and then next election, the other half done on that cycle. Well, given the entire House of Representatives members are up for election each election, the idea of having a half-Senate election ensures that you have some continuity. So you have members of the parliament, i.e. senators, who've actually served some time. And so when you have potentially, you know, a lot of new members, particularly in the lower house, that means you've got some corporate memory. Whether or not it works like that uh, in this day and age is debatable. And we've seen quite high turnovers in the Senate in the last three elections. In fact, even in my time in the Senate, in almost 13 years, where you have only 76 senators, I saw 68 senators come and go during that time. So it shows that a lot of people stay for a long time. Some people come for a very short period of time. But the idea is to have continuity. The exception to that, of course, are the territory senators, two from each of the autonomous territories are elected, but they're elected each election. So those poor territory senators have to face the poll every time the House of Representatives members do, not at a half-Senate election like half the Senate. When one party holds both the House and the Senate, is that a good or a bad thing? Well, that's what we call in politics a Dorothy Dixer question because my answer's probably quite predictable. I don't think it's appropriate for both houses to be dominated by the same political party. More often than not, obviously, 
government is going to be formed in the lower house. So more often than not, you're going to have a particular major party in control. But when it comes to the Senate, which is supposed to be that check on executive power, you know, the House of Review, keeping an eye on the lower house and the legislation that comes from there, I don't think it's healthy to have the same party in control. I think it's the brilliance of the Senate is the fact that you have to achieve agreement. You have to put forward your policy ideas and win them on their merits. And I think that's what we lost in 2005 to 2008, when for the first time in a long time, the parliament was uh, dominated by just the Howard government. So the mm. Liberal Party controlled both houses. And we saw some shocking legislation, shocking legislation. And I'm not just saying that from a, you know, I have a particular bias or partisan view, we actually saw more mistakes than ever going through Such as? the parliament. Oh, just you had amendments that didn't make sense or you had debates that should have been two hours to two days being guillotined. So when you, you know, ram something through because the government had the numbers to say, let's not even debate it. You had debates ranging from where to put a nuclear waste dump or, you know, debates about um, social security legislation and disability support or single parents, all of these debates were truncated because we didn't have to debate them because we actually couldn't debate them because the government had the numbers to shut down the debate. And some people might say, well, that's good, shut down parliament, it's boring, you know, wasting taxpayer dollars. But in actual fact, it meant that there were mistakes and lots of legislation would have to come back in order for us to write it properly or put the full stop in the right place or, you know, replace words that didn't make sense. It sounds trivial, but it matters. And it shows now that we've gone back to a system where you've got shared or multi-party democracy in the Senate. It shows that's what the electorate wants, because I think at the time they found it quite dictatorial as well. So what, a bill comes up from the House of Representatives into the Senate, and if the government of the day already has the numbers, there's no need for a debate. There's only a need for a debate if you're not sure if they've got the numbers or not. Is that right? All legislation should probably be debated because you know that there are some people that are going to offer a new opinion or have an idea or something may have cropped up in a committee or indeed from a member of the public. So it's always good to debate it. If legislation is straightforward, well, that debate will be very quick. And in fact, parties can negotiate in a way not to waste valuable Senate time and get that legislation through. But where legislation is hundreds of pages or incredibly complex or affects, you know, hundreds of thousands of people's lives, of course, that needs analysis. And sometimes people will put forward amendments that may not have been thought of even in the lower house. So debate is good. You don't have debate for the sake of it, but you have debate that actually adds weight to the policy and the legislation. When you have a government that controls both houses, you can actually shut down debate because you just put forward a motion that says, let's not debate this, and you vote on it, and of course they've got the numbers. And that's when mistakes happen. It operates more like a sausage factory than a Senate. I was going to say a dictatorship. <laughs> well, that's a strong indeed. word, I know, but in, in terms of the the system that it operates in, it, it sounds like that they, there's no checks and balances across other opinions. You can just do what you want. Indeed, and this is the role of the Senate, checks and balances, a check on executive power. And most Australians, I think particularly after that 2005 to 2008 period, learnt to really respect and be relieved by that because there were so many Australians who thought, OK, this is going to be an effective functioning government. You'll get everything passed through quickly. But most Australians realised, hmm, that's not really ideal. 
And why would you have two houses if they're going to be dominated by the same party anyway? And since then, Australians have returned to a system that is multi-party democracy in the Senate. In fact, more parties than we've ever seen before, which in itself carries some interesting debates. But I think Australians do relish that role of the Senate, even though it frustrates many people sometimes. Why are there so many minor parties in the Senate, especially today? Parties that you look at on the big voting sheet that you get and you go, how would they get in? And they do. How does that happen? Well, in the past, the Senate has actually had a different voting system from the House of Representatives. So the proportional nature of the Senate and its voting tickets in the past has meant that minor parties, smaller parties and individuals, independents, have had a much greater chance of getting elected. So in the past, you got 10% of the votes, you get 10% of the seats. And some of us feel that that's a very equitable system, um, along with the fact that each state and territory is reflected and represented and each state has equal numbers of representatives, so 12 from each of the states, two from each of the territories. It makes it a very representative body in terms of the partisan flavour reflected in the upper house. In the last few years, you've seen a new voting system implemented, which in theory doesn't actually see as many independents or minor parties getting a lift from the voting system. But As we've seen, thanks to Section 44, so that's the part of the Constitution that deals with eligibility for office, we've actually seen lots more accidental senators and we've seen lots of people elected on very, very small votes. In fact, sometimes I look at the votes and I think, that's not a vote, that's a blood alcohol reading. That's how small some of the votes have been. So the Senate right now is very interesting and it will be very, very intriguing to see what happens at the next poll. In that, though, it might bring into sharper focus not rolling your eyes when you you get the the Senate voting sheet when you rock up to the polling booth and it's as big to cover your dinner table, whereas you get the House of Representatives one and you could fold it and put it in your pocket. That's a really good point. I think when people are faced with a tablecloth for a voting paper, it sometimes puts you off. And in the past, the voting system has been quite complex for people trying to work out, do I vote one above the line or do I fill in every box? And not many people liked the idea of filling in every box below the line. I've never known one, Oh, you're ever. looking at her. You're looking <laughs> at her. Um, but... The thing with that is then people complain about their preferences, you know, being directed in a way that they don't like. But if you fill in every box, you know exactly where your preferences are going. But those of us who have done that and dealt with the tablecloth ballot paper, you get really stuck because I always knew who I wanted to vote for. So I'd do all the number ones, twos, threes. Then I'd go to the people I really didn't want to vote for and I'd start at the bottom (laughs) going, you know, 100, 99, 98. And if your numbers don't meet in the middle, you're absolutely stuffed and you've got to get a new voting, you know, ballot paper. But... Obviously, since 2016, there have been some changes to our electoral system. So really, you've only got to number up to about 12 now, I believe. So it's a very different system from my day. And that might change the way that minor, minor parties operate and have success in an election, yeah? Well, the idea of the new voting system is to stop those micro, really, really minor, minor parties from doing those very clever preference deals that saw some people get over the line, even though they had very, very low primary votes. So they didn't get many number one votes, but they managed to collect all these preferences from all these micro parties and get elected. So I think you'll see a change in some of those parties, but I do think minor parties and independents are going to have quite a field day at the next election. But I think that's also to 
to do with the level of disillusionment and, I guess, cynicism that we all have about the current political system. You're biased, of course, but do you feel that the Senate is a little undervalued in Australian politics and in the general public, the voting public? I think for a long time the Senate didn't achieve its potential until there were changes to the voting system in the 80s, which did give rise to multi-party representation. And we like to think, and of course the Democrats like to think, that we changed the Senate and the upper house from the house of the living dead to a genuine house of review. So it used to be a rubber stamp. But when you saw more people from different backgrounds and different parties reflected and represented, you actually saw better decision-making, more robust and rigorous committee systems being put in place and better rules. So, yep, I do think in the past the Senate's been undervalued. These days, I think the value of the Senate lies more in the attention it gets and that saddens me in a way too because I think a lot of senators are more conscious of what they're saying and the attention they're getting publicly as opposed to the work that they're doing behind the scenes. But there are still many good people and many good opportunities within the upper house. And I hope Australians do recognise that and value it. Natasha Stott-Despoir, thank you for giving us an expert insight into the workings of the Australian Senate. Much appreciated. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.